All right. Well, we are in John chapter 4. This is the last sermon of this section for written so that you might believe. And I I know we've said that before, but it is really the last one uh, for this this season. We're going to wrap it up today uh, in John 4, 27 through uh, 45, actually 45, not 46. Um, we're, we're looking today's title is, is The Verification of Christ as the Messiah. Um, as we've been going through this, it, it's been really eye-opening for me. Uh, it's been an amazing journey, right, through the first part of the life and work of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and the more I read, the more I, I dive into this, this narrative, this, these gospel accounts, and, and see them harmonized together, um, the more I see that Jesus is nothing less than God in the flesh. The living water, the bread of life, the only gracious, life-giving hope that we have. And, and I, I hope you see that too. I hope you see the richness of that. Uh, for me, at times in my life, I've, I've looked at the Gospels, I've read the Gospels, and oh yeah, Jesus, and I, I believe in Jesus and what he did. But when we see this in like a lens that we've been looking through over the past couple years as we've studied this, but even in particular this year, this season, We've seen Christ just come to life, I think, in this fullness of Christ being God in the flesh and Christ being the Messiah sent from God to rescue us. That God came down from heaven, took on human flesh so that he could die. On on Wednesday night, it was interesting, we talked about this a little bit, um, that, that there's this fullness in Christ. It wasn't that just Christ was now, you know, human and he had always been human. No, that, that God humbled himself and put on flesh. He, he, Jesus wasn't God the Son uh, with flesh in heaven before the incarnation. He put on flesh at the incarnation. So God humbled himself. And, and then he became obedient to death. Death on a cross. You see, for you and I, this, the, and, and the question that came up on, on Wednesday was this idea of the sacrifices. We're looking at Leviticus and all these sacrifices and atonements that have to be performed. Christ is now the finality of that, right? The work that Christ has done has made it finished. There is no need anymore for a sacrifice. He is the once and for all sacrifice for the sins of everybody. Amen? And that's, that's the hope that we have. But the only way that that's possible, if you understand this, and, and the totality of what we're looking at, the only way that that's possible is that if God himself would come and die. Because no one else, less than God, could have died for our sins. They would have had to die for their sins. But God came down and he died for us. And as we see the narrative of the Gospels, as we go through the work and life of Jesus, we see that our theme verse, right, it's written that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we would have life in his name. There's only life found in Jesus Christ. Apart from him, there is nothing. So today we're going to look at the, the last little section of this before we uh, put a pause in it, put a bookmark in it for next season uh, in John 4, 27 through 40, 45. Let me go ahead and pray for us and, uh, and we'll get to work on this. Father, I thank you so much for your love and your grace. We thank you that you've given us the opportunity to be here today. God, God whether we've gathered in person or online, we've, we've gathered here today to worship you, to learn from your word God, and then to glorify you with our lives. God, may today not be just about learning and and absorbing more knowledge or food, but God, may we live it every day in every way as you did. May we be the hands and feet of Jesus so that the world would see Jesus and come to know him by grace through faith as Savior. 
We thank you. We trust you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in John chapter 4. We're going to read verses 27 through 45. This is just after the interaction with the woman at the well. We saw that last week. And here it comes up just then. So she, she, uh, he, he had just said to the woman, I am the one, I the one speaking to you and him he. She wondered, is this the Messiah? So he just said that statement, I am he. And then just, as, uh, just then his disciples arrived and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want? Or what are you, why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar, went into the town and told the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. Don't you say there are still four more months and then comes the harvest? Listen to what I am telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for. Others have labored, and you have benefited from their labor. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. After two days, he left there for Galilee. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his home country. When, when they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival, for they had also gone to the festival. All right, we're going to unpack that today. And, and again, the title of this, uh, the sermon is Verification of Christ as the Messiah. It's really uh, just looking at more evidence, more and more proof. It's continuing to pile on. And, I, and as I went to this title, I had to look back, back at the past titles that we've gone through because in essence, the entire series is about Christ as Messiah, proving himself as Messiah that we might believe and have life. So it's just continually adding on. So as we look at this text and we say it's proof of the Messiah, this isn't an exhaustive proof. It's what we see in this passage, all right? There's plenty more where this came from. So we're going to look at proof that he's the Messiah. Number one, you'll see in your notes there that, that his top priority was to do the will of the Father. Well, what is some proof that he was the Messiah? His top priority was to do the will of the Father. That's, it's, and it's pretty amazing. And I, and I think about, uh, look at the text here, 27 through 34. Just then his disciples arrived. So they had gone into town, right? And he had this interaction with this, with this woman at the well. And it was kind of one of these, not kind of, it was absolutely a divine appointment, a divine encounter. But we had seen this last week when, when Jesus, uh, the, te the text that John said, uh, he, he had to go. He was heading out and going to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria. And we, we understood that. That wasn't true. Most, most highly religious people would avoid Samaria because it was like the riffraff. It was the filth, the unclean people, the irreligious people who had no idea about the roots of Judaism anymore, right? So they, they would go around and say, we're not going to go through an unclean place. So Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria, but Jesus had to go. He had to go there. Because he had an appointment, a divine appointment set before the foundations of the world. 
with this Samaritan woman. So understand that, that as Jesus is obedient to and prioritizes the will of the Father, that is what he's doing. He's coming into these sovereign interactions with people. And you and I will see that in our own lives, in our own stories, when Jesus encounters us. So 27 through 34, just then his disciples arrived. They were amazed that he was talking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Right? There was some respect there. There was, there was awe about what Jesus was about. And they didn't have a clue. Why, why is he talking to this woman? I, I'm sure we'll find out. Let's watch and see. Why are you talking with her? They didn't ask that. And it said, verse 28, Then the woman left her jar of water and went into town and told the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left town and made their way to him. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. Remember, he stopped there because he was weary. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And his disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? And here's the verse in verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. Proof that he's the Messiah. Well, his top priority was to do the will of the Father. So he, he understands that there's this sovereign divine appointment waiting for him in Samaria with this woman. And he is absolutely humbly obedient to the will of the Father and goes there and has an interaction with her Jesus was always on mission. He was always on his father's and about his father's business. These missions were given to him humbly, and he humbly followed them wherever he went. Matthew 6.38 says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is Jesus' his, his mission. I came to do the will of him who sent me. Psalm 40, a messianic uh, psalm, a, a prophecy of what Christ would be and say. In 7 through 8, he says, Then I, then I said, See, I have come uh, in the scroll it is written about me. I delight to do your will, my God, and your instruction is deep within me. It's interesting here that he says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. See, Jesus, we've already talked about this, but Jesus had already gone into the desert in, in the wilderness and was tempted by Satan, right? And he fasted. He was fasting for 40 days. I think Jesus can live without food for a little while. But it's not just about punishing your body and living without food and checking it off the box. There was a mission. See, Jesus preoccupied himself with the will of the Father at every instance so that food became less important. What was supremely important was the will of the Father. And we see that in Jesus. Jesus, uh, his, his food was, and his sustenance was being consumed with God's will and with his work, right? He has, he has sympathy for the needs of souls and, and his desire to pray overrode his conscious need for food. He was preoccupied with something else. How about you? You ever miss a meal because of being preoccupied? Too busy? Hard at it? Absolutely, we have. But most of us aren't going to be able to say that I missed the meal because I was preoccupied with the Lord's work. Most of us aren't going to be willing to say or, or able to say that I missed the meal because I was preoccupied with prayer. Now, we're certainly called to fasting and prayer. And we're, we're having a fasting and prayer day and night on, on March 1st. But that's different. See, that there is absolutely not a preoccupied nature of something else. I am absolutely all day long preoccupied with the fact I'm not eating. And I have to push myself to go to prayer. I have to push myself to go back into the Lord's work. I have to push myself past the physical, some, whatever boundary I think it is, 
of fatigue or, or whatever and, and push myself there. Jesus didn't have to do that. He was preoccupied with the work and will of his Father. How about you? How about me? Can we say that my food is to do the will of the one who sent me, the one who saved me, the one who did everything for me? That that's my will. I, I think about this when I go fishing. Right? I'll, I'll get on a little boat, I'll go out in the middle of a lake, and I'll go early in the morning and I'll just start fishing. I don't care about breakfast. I, I don't care about lunch. I mean, I'm caring about fishing, right? And if I'm eating, I'm not fishing. And, and it might go hours and hours and hours, and I get off the lake and I have this big stringer of fish. I'm like, this is so exciting. And then I'm like, oh, what time is it? I'm hungry. Right? We preoccupy ourselves with the hobbies we like. Maybe you have a job where it's, it's just constant some days and you, you go from one person or one thing to the next, one task to the next, and you're like, I, I, can't, I didn't get a bite. I didn't get a, a break. And at the end of the day, you're like, oh, man, I'm, I'm kind of hungry. I used, to be, I used to be, I still am, I don't have room for it, but I used to be into model railroading. I, I know, I love little model toy trains. That's me. I love it. They're fun, right? But I, I'd be so enthralled and preoccupied with little nails and putting things together and making it perfect and soldering the joints together. And, and, and by the end of the day, I'm like, oh, I forgot to eat because I was preoccupied. This is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. It's like, yeah, I, I, I had something else on my mind. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to, and to finish his work. Finish his work. You see, it was on his mind, and this is what Jesus had in mind. It wasn't that he went to the, to the well and said, I've got to finish this job right here, and then I can eat. The word he uses for finish is the same word he used right before he gave his last breath on the cross. We saw in John 19, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said what? It is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. It's not even about finishing this conversation with this person. It is about the cross. I'll eat when I eat. It's about the work my father has given me to do. Uh, interesting, I, there's a quote in my commentaries this week um, from Charles Spurgeon. I'm going to read this to you. It really convicted me. Because we, we tend to think, okay, if I, if I just spend a lot of time in prayer, a lot of time in the Word, I'll, I'll fast and I'll go there, it's going to be great. And, and what we end up doing is we just end up eating and eating and eating and feeding on this, right? But we never use it as energy for the work of the gospel. So it's not just to be in the will or, or do the will of God by being in the Word and being in prayer. It's more than that. It's about being in the work of God and participating with God in the work of God, being the hands and feet of Jesus. So Spurgeon says this, some of you, and I'm part of this, some of you, by the way, some of you good people who do nothing except go to public meetings, Bible readings, conferences, would be a good deal better Christians if you would look after the poor and needy around you. If you would just tuck up your sleeves for work and go to tell the gospel to, a dying, to dying men, and you would find your spiritual health mightily restored. For very much of the sickness of Christians comes through their having nothing to do. All feeding and no working makes men spiritually irritable. Be idle, careless, with nothing to do or nothing to live for, nothing to care for, no sinner to pray for, no backslider to lead back to the cross, no trembler to encourage, no little child to tell of a Savior, no gray-headed man to enlighten in the things of God, no, no object, in fact, to live for. And who wonders? If you begin to groan and to murmur and to look within until you are ready to die of despair. I think Spurgeon had it right. It's not only that we spend time in the word and prayer, but when we are filled up with that nourishment, we go out with that energy 
and do the work of the gospel. That's when we grow. So often we've had this conversation recently, even in our, our, some of our staff meetings and talking. You know, there's a lot of people who come and like, I really want, I want some depth of sermon today. I want to really chew on this, this, this deep stuff. And we offer that, right? We, we give you some deep things. But we would be absolutely remiss if that's all we did. You know what's really deep? You want to know what's really deep? Is doing and applying what we have learned. Not just coming and listening and, oh man, I got a good nugget. That's going to be awesome. That just it encourages me and now I've got something to put in my journal for later. Go out and do what Jesus is calling us to do. Let us be preoccupied, so preoccupied with the will and the work that Christ has given us that we wouldn't care to miss a meal because we are going out in love to love people and to do Christ's work. See, Jesus was on a rescue mission and his top priority, and ours should be too, was the will and the work that the Father had given him to do. Number two, second proof that he's the Messiah that we see here is that he has insight into people's souls. He has insight into people's souls. Uh, look here at John chapter 4, verses 35 through 38. He says, don't you say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? So they're, they're telling him, hey, in four months we got the harvest coming. Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. This just supports what he just said, right? And, and, and it's not just to be consuming Christ. It's about going out and living Christ, working the fields of harvest. He says, look, look uh, your eyes, look at the fields because they're ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for, and others have labored, and you have benefited from their labor. See, you, you and I think at times, like right now, maybe in your life, you have a friend or a neighbor, and it's like, well, they, they're not quite ready. They're not, they're not ready for Jesus or the deep things of God. And, and here's what I would tell you. You don't know that. I mean, you might suspect that, and maybe you have, you've had deep conversations, but, but typically we don't know that. What we're really saying is, I'm not ready to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them yet. I still want to talk about the pleasantries. I still want to bring up the weather and talk about our favorite sports teams and get that relationship built and going, which is absolutely important, right? We should build a rapport and relationship with people. But you and I have to understand that God has insight to people's souls, and he's the one that's working in people's hearts and souls. Our job is to, to pray through and till the soil of the heart, and our job is to, to be obedient, to go and to, and to scatter the seed. Scatter the word of God and let them know how deeply they're loved by Jesus. How deeply they need Jesus. Just like how you understood your need for Jesus. And how you repented of your sin and you turned to him in faith and received the grace of God. Sometimes we think that the fields aren't ready. But Jesus knows the hearts and souls that are ready to respond in faith, we just have to go out and share. And we're going to see a harvest. We're going to see people's hearts turn to faith in Christ. I want to read a, a passage of this, the parable of the sower and the seed just out of Matthew 13. Because I think it's important for us to understand when we're talking about the fields that are ripe with harvest, what, what has to happen here as well. And sometimes we get stuck in the parables and we get stuck in one area and that's why we don't share but there are four different kind of areas that are exposed here of, of a human heart or soul. 
And one of them is absolutely ready and ripe to receive the word of God, the gospel of their salvation, and that it will, will root deep and bear fruit. So it says in Matthew 13, Jesus says, listen, uh, he says, when anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, uh, the evil one comes and snatches away what's, what's sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the path. So the, right before this, he says there's the, the path and the rocky soil and the weeds and then the good soil, right? So he's explaining this text. He says, yeah, the, the seed that fell on the soil, on the, on the hard soil, the path, it was beaten down. It didn't penetrate at all, right? The birds of the air came and snatched it away. Same thing here. He says the evil one comes and snatches it away from their heart. It says, uh, and the one sown on rocky ground, this, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. So we've got past one area of the heart, and the next one is immediately receiving it with joy. There's only three left, right? Now, it doesn't mean this person is redeemed. They're, just, they're receptive. They're wanting to know more. They're, they're hungry. They're, they're trying to figure out what might satisfy their hunger. It says, but it has no root, and it's short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the world or the word, um, immediately he falls away. Now, the one sown among the thorns is the one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But the one sown on the good ground, this is the one who hears and understands the word, who does produce a fruit and yields some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty times what was sown. So he knows the heart. And, and listen, God is creating divine appointments for you and for me to not only sow, but also to reap the harvest if we would be faithful to speak about Christ. When we sow the word of God, you know, maybe it's leaving, leaving a gospel track somewhere. I, I, we, God meets people in all types of ways, but you and I have to, have to get out of just, we have to stay in prayer, right? Stay in the word, but go beyond that to living that out and walking with people and talking with people and sharing the good news of Christ. We need to be direct with people about their need to repent and believe. And we see this a little bit. I, I love how this came to life last week. Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman, right? And, and we think, oh, it's, it's all about adultery. It's, it's not. It, it moves through that. And after the adultery conversation is had, he points out the sin in her life. She wants to change the subject. Remember that? She wanted to change the subject. Said, well, where should we worship? So out of the heart, I don't want you to expose my heart anymore. Let's get out of there. Hey, where, where should we worship? Let's talk about location instead of internal stuff. And what did he do? He said, it's not about where. It's about how from the heart you worship. He took it right back to the heart. Someone asked me this week, we had a conversation like, how do I talk to this person? How do I get in depth with them about, about Jesus, about their need for Jesus? So you always have to go to the heart. And, and they're going to want to stay with the physical and how good they are or what they did as a kid or what the, what, where they went. And you're like, oh, that's really, that's really cool. That's great. You almost validate that and say, yeah, good job for you. At least you're kind of moving in the right direction. No, we have to move it back to the heart. Because when people can see the heart, they understand how, how depraved they are, how depressed they are, how, how, how desperate they are in need of a Savior. So be deliberate. Be direct with people. Go to the heart. Jesus knows their heart, and, and we don't, right? We, but if we go there and they reject it, we move on to the next one. There's some, some soil that's really, really hard path, right? That it just will not penetrate. Some soil is rocky, and we have to get to some of those rocks out. Some soil is, is all full of weeds, and we need to get the weeds out. So our prayer time needs to be praying for the hearts of those around us. God, God till the soil. I, I pray that. God, our prayers are tilling the soil of the heart for people. God, help them get the rocks out. Help them, help them open their eyes. Help them get the cares and worries of the world out of their lives, out of their hearts, so they can see how desperate they need you. 
Sometimes I pray the opposite. God, make, it, make more weeds come in, more weeds come in, more weeds, so that they, just, they want to get a new garden. They want, they want the new heart. We pray to that end, and then we speak to that end. We speak to the heart. So he's insight into people's souls. So we should be able to go and speak to people because he has the insight and he's doing the work inside. Number three, the proof that he's the Messiah. His words of life are convincing. His words of life are convincing. We see that in the text in John 4, 39 to 42. So remember, remember, remember this, the, 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 lady, the gal left, right? So we go back to the food part. The sustenance and nourishment. She, she had this encounter with the Messiah. He went deep to her heart, continually pushed it there, impressed there, her need for a Savior. And he, he, ex- he expressed that he was and, and revealed that he was the Messiah, the only hope that she had. What did she do? She went into town and told everybody, right? But what did she do before that? It said that she left her what? She left her water jar. She, she gets it. What's more important than food and water? What's more important than sustenance is to do the will of God. And she ran into town to tell everybody. And she said, I, I've met the one who told me everything I ever, ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And the text of this in Greek is not, is not her wondering, could this, could this be the Messiah? I'm not sure. But she was respecting the people of the town, saying, I'm not going to tell you what to believe, but I'm going to tell you, you better check it out. This, this man has told me everything about me. He knows my heart. Could this be the Messiah? Huh? Check it out. And they, they left to go check it out. And then, so this next passage, uh, in verses 39 to 42, now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said. When she testified, he told me everything I ever did. And when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. I, it drives me nuts that we have no idea what he did or said. It's not there, isn't it? I mean, it's, the word is totally sufficient for us. We don't need that. But I would love to be a fly on the wall of those conversations. Jesus, the Jewish rabbi who would normally circumvent and go around Samaria, is in the middle of it. And he ta- starts out talking to a woman all by himself, asking for a drink from her water jar, her, her vessel. Like, I'm willing to totally defile myself because you're important. In, in, a, in Samaria with these people who, who were irreligious and were immoral and corrupt and totally just wishy-washy on everything, are now absolutely interested in the rival, right, down the street, who, who absolutely has, wants nothing to do with them, and they want nothing to do with him. But they're, now they're interested because of what he said and what he's done and what he's revealed. I'd love to have known. He stayed there for two days. And then it says, whatever happened between verse 40 and 41, many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, so after this whole time, the woman, the woman she comes and says, hey, come see the man. This is, this is the Messiah. He, he's, he's the one that's told me everything that is inside my heart. He knows us. And people believed, right? And then they spent time with him, two days questioning and wondering, and maybe he's doing miracles and whatever he's doing with them. And then at the end of the time, they go to the woman and say, man, I'm so glad you said something, but I don't just believe because you said it anymore. I believe because he said it. I believe because he's hit the heart. He knows me, and I'm now his. We no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know this really is the Savior of the world. It's amazing the Samaritans are believing this Jewish rabbi. Why? Because he's the Messiah and he has the words of life. I want to read you an encounter Jesus had again with other other teachers and other people, and it's in John 6, 
it's kind of long, but it'll sum up, sum up this point. And, and it ties in with our Lord's Supper today. When we talk about Jesus being the living water, Jesus is the bread of life, right? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's, he's the one that gives us new birth. And he's telling this to the people. He says this, Truly I tell you in verse 47 of John 6, Anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone who may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. After that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us flesh to eat, his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, and this is, this is Jesus escalating. They, they want to take it out of context. They want to like, wait, how, you're going to cut a piece off and you're gonna, how is this going to work? What is Jesus doing? He's the living water. He's the bread of life. He's offering his flesh as a sacrifice on the cross and he's pouring out his blood for you and for me. That's, that's the finished work he's going to do. You're like, well, I don't, I don't get it. It's like, just like Nicodemus, like, I'm a man, a human, I'm an adult. How can I be born again? That doesn't make sense, fleshly, right? The woman at the well. Like, he's like, if you would have known who you're talking to, woman, you would have asked me for a drink. She's like, where's your bucket? How can you give me a drink? Even in this crowd, like, hey, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, how are you going to feed us your flesh? That's kind of weird. So he kind of digs deeper. He says, truly I tell you, unless you eat of the flesh of man and drink the blood, drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is true food, and my body is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Again, this is his body. It's the bread of life. It's his, his blood is the living water that you partake in, and we partake in with our heart. The water that he has to offer is not an actual bucket of water. It's him, that we would drink from him, that we would believe in him, that we would trust him as Savior, and we would drink with our heart, and we'd eat with our heart. Verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven. It's not like the manna your ancestors ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he asked them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. So he's, he's clarifying this right there. It's, like, it, it, it's not about eating my actual flesh and drinking my actual blood. That'd be weird. This is a spiritual matter. The flesh doesn't help at all. It's the spirit who gives life. And the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and the one who would betray him. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away too, do you? Now, we're going to read this last verse here. I want, I want us to understand, when he's with the Samaritans, what he may have said, something similar to this with them, talking about him being the bread and, the, and his blood being the living water, and they had to partake of him and believe with their heart. 
See, Jesus, his words are life and they're convincing. So he asked, do you want to go, to, go away too? And Simon Peter, in verse 68, Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? Where, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life and we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's amazing. See, Peter understood. People who have come to him in repentant faith, by grace, through faith, in, in his saving life, know that there's nowhere else to go. If we're counting on the flesh to count, if we're trying to work it out on our own to figure it out, it, it won't matter. We'll leave hungry. We'll leave empty. We'll leave disappointed because of hard things that Jesus has said. But what we see here, a proof in this passage, is his words of life are convincing. I hope for you that you can say that. Yes, his words of life are convincing and that I, I've, I can't go anywhere else. There's nowhere else I can go but that you have come to believe and know that Jesus Christ is the Holy One of God sent to rescue you and, and me from our sin. Finally, number four, proof that he's the Messiah. He would be received by few and rejected by many. You see, his words of life are convincing, but they are also convicting. And they're hard things, right? We saw that in the last text. These things were hard to understand. More importantly, it's hard to humble your heart and to receive the gospel by faith. It's hard to say, I don't have it all together. It's hard to say, I'm a desperate sinner in need of a Savior. It's hard to say, I haven't done enough. But we must say that. We must know that. And then when we do, we go to him in faith and we have life. But people who are being convinced of this are also being convicted. So Jesus would be received by few and rejected by many. Look at John, the last part of our verse here, 43 to 45. After two days, he left there for Galilee. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his home country. So Jesus is going to his home country, and he, he knows, like, ah, they're not going to, no, they're not going to like me there. Then verse 45 happens. It's kind of interesting. When they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival, for they had also gone to the festival. So they had been in town, they'd, they'd, in Jerusalem, they'd seen the festival, they'd been there to participate. They, many of them may have seen him cleanse the temple, right? A few, a few uh, verses, passages earlier. And, and now they're back at home and Jesus is coming. They're like, yeah, let's, we, we want to talk. We want to see what's going on. We want to know more. We want more miracles from Jesus. It's interesting. It seems like they, they're receiving him gladly, right? Yeah, maybe. But there is some prophecy here. And Jesus himself had testified that the prophet has no honor in his own country. Then we see John 1, and we've, we've said this and read this several times throughout the series. But John 1, 10 through 13, says, He was in the world, Jesus, and though the world was created through him, uh, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who would believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but the will of God. See, Jesus would come, and, and to his own, they would reject him. He would come to them and, and say, you can have me. Says, no, no, Jesus. We're not, we, know, we know too much about you. We know who you are. 
You're not that special to us. You kind of are a pain in our neck, actually. Right? Because Jesus was around them a lot. Matthew shows us this in 13, 57, or 53 and following. When Jesus finished these parables, he left there. And this is not having to do with our story. Uh, he went to his hometown and began to teach them in their synagogue. This is later on, right? This is, so they had welcomed him, re- received him in. Come on in. We're, we see what we've done at the festival. Later on, he's in his hometown teaching in the synagogue. They were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, aren't they all with us? So where does he get all these things? And they were offended by him. Isn't that amazing? You can say, well, where does he get all this? He's speaking awesome, crazy truths here. But it's hitting their heart, right? It's convicting them of sin. So what do they do? They write him off because he's offensive. They were offended by him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Because of their unbelief. There were times his, his mother and his, his siblings came to him and like saying, Jesus, you need to go to the crazy house. Let's go. You're talking crazy stuff. They're, they're trying to intervene, right? It's like, well, we saw you grow up. We saw you, we saw you play outside and now you're, you're talking kind of strange stuff and this is, I don't know if we can handle this. Isn't that the case for everybody though? Not just the people in his hometown. How, how difficult it is for, for people to handle the fact that they are sinful and that Jesus came to forgive them of their sin by dying on a cross for them. That Jesus says, hey, if you would, you would get over yourself and get over your own pride and get over your own abilities, I would take care of it for you. Like, No, that sounds like crazy talk. That's, a, that's offensive. So how dare you call me sinful? How dare you tell me I'm wrong? And our culture today is getting more and more abrupt with this. You can't tell anybody they're wrong. Or they'll cancel you. If you don't believe how someone else believes, in all of that, they're rejecting the Messiah. Jesus told us that wide, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to death. And many go through it. Many go through it. But narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. Why? Because very few do the hard work, the hardest work of all, of humbling themselves, of emptying themselves, of leaving themselves behind and, and everything that was attached to them, their preferences and their prejudices and their, their upbringing and leaving it all behind and saying this is like filth compared to knowing Christ Jesus. It's so important that we would know Christ Jesus. Wide is the gate that leads to death and narrow is the one that leads to life and few find it. But here's the amazing thing for us. And I hope that your heart has been empty and open and receptive as we've gone through this text, not just today's text, but the harmony of the Gospels. Because it's there for the taking. It's there for the believing. It's there for the receiving. Our theme verse again, these are written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you would have life in his name. 
Humble yourself and believe. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. I hope that's not you today. I hope you believe. You see, knowing Christ means trusting in him as the living water, as the bread of life, as the one who gives us new birth, our most valued treasure. He is God in the flesh who gave himself for us so that by grace, through faith, we would be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of our own, but one that is through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on back up, and we're going to participate and partake in the Lord's Supper together. We, uh, as we come to the Lord's table, that is, that is what we say. We, we come, and come to him saying, he is the bread. He is the living water. Everything about him and, and faith in him and belief in him gives us new life and new birth. So for you and I, it is so important to come and partake in remembrance of him. Remembrance that we are not in charge, that we are not supreme, that there's nothing about what we have accomplished that is right before God. Only faith in Christ counts. Trust in Christ counts. And even partaking of the elements, this does not mean that it's saving you. It means that you have been saved by his actual body given for us and his blood shed for us. That's what this means. I'm also going to ask the, those I've asked to serve the Lord's Supper to come on up. In our church, we, when we serve the Lord's Supper, and I know it's COVID and all, and we haven't done this for a while, but we really thought it was important to do. As we, as we participate in this, as we uh, share the elements, we're going to pass out uh, the elements, and we're just going to reach across the pew in front of you so it's just kind of reach over and grab. It's a double cup. Just grab one cup out, uh, one doubled cup, right? And both elements will be there, and you can separate them. And wait till everyone's uh, received one of the cups. And once everyone's received one of the cups, uh, then we will partake together. We'll read some scripture. We'll pray. We'll partake together uh, in the elements and, and just remember what Christ has done. But here, here's the kicker here. If, if, if you haven't put your faith and hope in Jesus Christ, if you haven't repented of sin and trusted him as Savior, this doesn't mean anything to you. And scripture would say, just don't partake. So we just ask, if, if that's not you, just, just you can refuse it. That's okay. There's no judgment there. Let's just send it on to the next person. And watch. Watch as we remember. Watch as we partake in the symbol of, of Christ. What he's given us on the cross and through shedding his blood for our sin. The great thing is we, we don't have a Savior that not only humbled himself and became obedient to death. We have a Savior that has risen from death that has conquered death. Why? Because God was the one who paid it for us and God could not be bound by death. And through his life, we will have life as well. God, thank you so much for this opportunity you've given us to listen to your word, to let it sink into our hearts, to let it remind us of who we are in Christ and whose we are. And God, today as we partake in the elements of the, of the bread and of the juice, God, I 
I pray that you would help us to understand and remember the depth of your sacrifice. God, what you've done and what you've, you've made possible through your death, through your burial, through your resurrection, that through repentant, humble faith, we can come to receive the grace of God by faith and have eternal life. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.